Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, you find me today very excited. I am I am truly pumped uh, right now because, uh, as you can see, I am joined by Dr. Yanya Lalich, uh, Doctor of Sociology, and basically, if I might gush for a moment, one of my heroes, one of the people that I have looked up to who has inspired me uh, with her work and with her writings uh, in this field of cult uh, expose or abuse or recovery and and the anatomy of cults and all of that. She has been somebody who, from the from very early on, her work helped me understand what happened to me. And there aren't a lot of words I have to describe or to to say how thankful I am for that. So first off, I just wanted to start with that. So, Dr. Lalich, welcome to my show, and thank you for being. Here today. Well, thank you for being you and thank you for the kind words. You bet. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Um, now, let's go ahead and let the audience know for those of you out there who don't, because uh, of course, you know, this is a pretty niche field and, um, and it's not necessarily, you know, on every show every week, what, you know, who these people are and what's going on behind the scenes and everything. So could you describe for everybody kind of who you are and your basic background in this field? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm right now. I'm an emerita professor of sociology, which means that I was retired with honor. Um, this all started back in the '70s when I found myself in a political cult. Of course, I didn't know it was a cult at the time. Uh, so that was ten years of pretty grueling life: uh, twenty-hour days, nonstop, year after year, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, when I got out, I was almost 41 years old, and I went to New York, and luckily I found a fabulous therapist who worked at the cult clinic in New York. There was a cult clinic at the time, both in New York and in L.A. Wow. That was, yeah, that were sponsored by the um, Jewish Family and Friends Services Organization. Huh. And actually, that's what, what, what Rachel Bernstein came out of that. Right. That's how I met her way back when. Anyway, this therapist really saved my life because I was very suicidal for a long time. Uh, mostly because while I was in the cult, I was in high leadership. I was in the inner circle. I knew a lot of the shit that went on. And I modeled myself after the leader and the second in command who recruited me. And I was an absolute bitch. And I hurt a lot of people. I expelled people. I thought of punishments for people. I convinced women to get abortions, you know, the whole gamut. Yeah. So when I got out, I was extremely shameful and felt guilty about the all that I had done in those 10 years. And I kept asking myself, like, how did I become this person, you know? Yeah. So that's why I was suicidal. I, I, I couldn't deal with the aftermath. And... So she, she, the therapist really helped me, and eventually I moved back to the Bay Area where uh, where we had been headquartered, and I started speaking at conferences uh, because in that day, which was 1986, um, really the only information out there was about religious cults. Mm -hmm. so I started speaking about 
that I was in a political cult and that there's more than just religious cults. Yeah. Um, and then after 10 years out, I decided to go to grad school, which I had a couple of good friends who kept pushing that, and as well as Dr. Margaret Singer, who was the sort of preeminent cult person back then and was a friend of mine and a colleague and a mentor. So I went to grad school, got my PhD. All of that time, I was running support groups for survivors, like I said, going to conferences, writing books. Um, and while I was teaching, I kept being involved in the cult field, um, although I had a very heavy teaching load. Um, and then in 2019, I retired from the university. Uh, I moved back to the Bay Area. I thought, okay, I'm going to write a memoir now. And <laughs> so I've had a pretty crazy life. Um, <clears throat> and then the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, my emails went crazy. Like everybody's uncle and brother and cousin were falling down these rabbit holes, right? QAnon, anti-vaxxer movements, et cetera. Um, and yeah. I have never been busier. Um, so I'm actually happy to no longer be teaching. I, I, I love teaching, but I really hated the um, bureaucracy and I hated grading and exams. Ali, hush, I'm sorry, that's my dog. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, I've been super busy. I, I consult, consult with survivors, with families, with attorneys. I've done expert witness work. I've written more books. I have a website. I've just started a nonprofit. Just last month, I turned 78, and I realized who knows how long I'll be here. And I wanted to set up something as kind of a legacy of all that I've done for the past 35 years, and the nonprofit seemed the way to do it, um, in part because it's a way for me to train people to be able to carry on with this work, and also it's a way to raise money, being that we're tax deductible, because the last few years, <clears throat> when I've been co-leading courses, recovery courses, and things like that, yeah. um, most survivors don't have a lot of money, which I know. I mean, I didn't have a penny when I got out. <clears throat> so the hope for, of being a, a tax-deductible organization is that we can raise funds to provide scholarships. Uh, we always have given scholarships, but we had a very little fund. It was basically one person who was giving money. But this way, I'm hoping we can expand that and really be able to serve a lot more people. Excellent. Excellent. Great rundown there. Um, okay, well, I have a ton of questions for you. So I want to just start kind of firing at them, uh, them at you. Um, because, I, you know, I, I've been doing this for 10 years. I also got out when I was 42. <laughs> and, well, you, uh, you know, and funny, you, you, you got out in 86. That's when I kind of got in in <laughs> uh, <laughs> Scientology. Anyway, it's kind of funny just how, uh, you know, comparing and contrasting stories. Now, you are absolutely somebody who is considered in the in the field a, a cult expert. So first off, why don't you well, what's your idea or description of, you know, how do you explain to people what a cult is and and, and, and how do you think about it? So the way I look at it is um, first of all, that cults exist on a continuum. There are they go from very dangerous and harmful to somewhat benign. I don't think there's anything 
I don't think there's a, such a thing as a good cult, because for me, in order to fit the definition of being a cult, you're basically giving up your autonomy. So even if it's a benign cult, it's never good to give up your autonomy, even if it's a chocolate chip cookie cult, right? And they're forcing <laughs> you to eat chocolate chip cookies nonstop. Right. So that's one element that's important for me. But essentially for me, I see that cults have four characteristics that create the structure and uh, <clears throat> I call that my bounded choice framework. So within mm -hmm. that, we have, of course, the authoritarian leader, who's usually a narcissist and most often what we call a malignant narcissist, meaning that they do bad things. Um, <clears throat> and that leader is, <clears throat> excuse me, that leader is typically uh, the originator of whatever the ideology is or the belief system. Um, and claims to be some kind of special human being or sometimes not even a human being um, who demands all loyalty and all obedience. So number one, you've got the leader. Secondly, for me, what I see is what I call a transcendent belief system. And by that, I mean that it's an ideology that offers you the answer to everything, the past, the present, and the future. It explains your whole life. It provides you an entirely new worldview. And within that ideology is what I call the end justifies the means philosophy. So once you have an end justifies the means philosophy, that means that you can be asked to do anything as long as it's said to be toward our greater goal. Um, and that's where the danger comes in, because that's when you can be asked to harm other people, to rob banks, to kill people, you know, whatever it might be. Not always that extreme, but everything you do is for that so-called greater goal. Um, so I always say, if you run into any kind of organization that has that and justifies the means philosophy, turn around and run the other way as fast as you can. <laughs> Big time. That's right. <laughs> um, and then within that belief system are the sort of the seeds of the indoctrination program, uh, which is what changes you to become the perfect loyal cult member. And the final characteristics are what I call the systems of control and the systems of influence. And so by systems, I don't mean something mechanical. Uh, it's basically a sociological way of looking at it. Um, <clears throat> so by systems of control, what I mean are networks of mechanisms that are used to control you. And these are usually very obvious, very overt, sort of the rules and regulations of the group, right? Which might be what you wear or don't wear, who you can see, where you should live, who to marry, how many children to have or not have, how to raise your children, et cetera, et cetera. But these are the obvious rules and regulation. And then fourth, <clears throat> fourth is the systems of control, which are the interlocking social psychological mechanisms that prey on your emotions, right? right. And, and I believe the systems of influence are, are far more effective than the obvious systems of control, right? Because here your feelings of grief and love and anger and fear and whatever, all those emotions are being manipulated to get you to respond in a way that the cult wants you to respond. 
And this is where the change really happens, right? Mm -hmm. So while some people call this indoctrination program mind control, I basically reject that term. It's not a scientific term. It sounds really mechanical to me, Mm -hmm. is why I prefer to use indoctrination. Of course, this is also brainwashing, which is a very controversial word. So I try to stay away from it. But I absolutely believe in brainwashing. I was one of the main brainwashers in the cult I was in. So, <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> no yep. whereof I speak, yeah. and as do you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's this combination of these four features that form the structure of the cult. And what I like about my theory of bounded choice is that I think it helps explain not just what happened to you, but how it happened to you, because that's what so many survivors don't understand. Just like I was saying, how did I become that person? Right. Um, This helps you see, as I said earlier, not just what was done to you, but how it was done to you. And I think that's really important in terms of recovery um, and, and getting rid of the shame and the guilt and, you know, forgiving yourself and all of those things that need to happen on the recovery trail. Yeah, exactly. Which I want to talk to you about in more detail in a bit. Um, I, I'm curious, from your perspective as a sociologist, do you think that, you know, when I first kind of got involved in this, I got, you know, really went down uh, critical thinking, it's really important stuff, we can, we can solve this problem, right? And it's kind of like, um, you come to realize over years, as you learn more and more and more about people and how, and how, how cultic dynamics or cultic uh, structures are really sort of a a kind of extreme version of what we all do anyway in terms of social models, right? (laughs) Right. So does it seem like there really is an end in sight for this? (laughs) No. No, I didn't didn't think so either. (laughs) I think as as, as long as there are humans that are like the humans today and have been for centuries, um, people who want a purpose in life, want meaning, want community, want family, you know, these are all normal human desires. And you match that up with the number of people that, in my opinion, there will always be the con artists, the shysters, the people who are going to take advantage of other people. Um, And so I think until however this all ends, Lord knows it may end sooner than we think. That's mm. what I'm thinking these days. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think we will always have cults. I mean, cults are us essentially. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Now, here's a question I have for you because you have, and I, and your model is this bounded choice model that you just described is something that I have actually preferred to think with for a very long time, in terms of how we model groups or or the psychology and sociology of this whole thing right and there's lots of ways of modeling behavior or modeling the 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 cult structure we have a bite model Mm -hmm. we have uh thought reform with with robert lifton's eight points of okay well if these things are going on you have a thought reform kind of thing going on how do you think about these different models because i don't think there's one model to rule them all or something like that, but I think they can be useful in different circumstances. What is your view on that? Well, uh, you know, I see nothing wrong with a variety of models as long as they're 
uh, helpful and accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, Lifton, you know, Lifton was always my hero because mm-hmm. what he wrote was about the Chinese Communist Party. And so my experience in a political cult um, where we thought Chairman Mao was God, you know, Lifton really saved my life along with my therapist, because as I was saying, there was nothing about political cults back then. So everything I read was about religious cults. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, we weren't a religion. So Lifton's work, I think, is groundbreaking and is really the source of all of this understanding Um, Along with, you know, Edgar Schein's work on coercive persuasion. And then you put Margaret Singer in the mix because she worked with both of them. Um, And so she had her model of six conditions. Mm. Uh, And so, yeah, I think all these models are fine. Um, Obviously, I prefer mine. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And Lifton's. um, Because, as I was saying earlier, I think the importance is explaining how things are done. Um, so I, I find that like, you know, I mean, it was revelatory for me. It was basically, it was the outcome of my PhD dissertation. And I was like, oh my God, I've just figured this out. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. but you know, uh, you know, models are great. The more, the merrier. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, yeah, I had a, <laughs> Yeah, I had a, I had a real perspective shift uh, years ago on on models because people tend to glom on to one or something or two and oh this is it this is all you know and yeah and then somebody uh, in this field was like oh yeah model schmodel whatever you know there's 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 <laughs> you know we got a, we got models coming out our ears right it's kind of like what's the context what's the situation how are you going to help this person right in front of you you know kind of thing. Was his was his right. basic approach to it, um, but again, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, and that's why I've liked yours, is because the very name really puts it there that you are on a path, a bounded path. That you, you your choices are not up to you; they are limited. Right, and that's really exactly. essential to understanding what this whole thing is about. Right. Speaking of, now you've been doing this for a long time. You know, you harken back to the the seventies and eighties, uh, Margaret Singer, and you know, and, and some of this work. How have you seen public perception of the so called cult problem change over this time? Well, I, I would think it's. I, I think it's gotten better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think for a long time. Uh, it was very the the idea of cults was was very sensationalized and whatever coverage there was was very sensationalized. So you know I think a lot of people thought well you know either every cult is going to end up like Jonestown you know some doomsday thing or every cult is going to end up in a fiery destruction like Waco yeah. um, and as I said cults exist on a continuum so. I, I think, <clears throat> I think lately, I think especially, I well, there's a few things that I think have affected this. I think one is that since the pandemic, since 2019-20, I think the coverage in the media has improved. I think it's not as sensationalistic. Uh, there have been some very good in-depth documentaries that don't just focus on the cult that blew itself up mm-hmm. um that really tried to get at the 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 members perspective and what people go through and understanding the leaders a little better i think having had he who i shall not name as our president 
um, really opened up people's eyes to narcissism, mm. uh, to that self-centeredness and how one person has the ability to kind of sway the masses. Um, and so I think that fed into our understanding or the public's understanding. Um, and I, and I, you know, I just think, you know, over time, I mean, I don't know how many times I've talked about all this on various media outlets, written or audio, whatever. Um, I, I do think, I mean, certainly you still get the people who say, well, you know, those people in cults, they're just stupid, lazy, crazy. You know, yeah. they get recruited because they're weak people or, you know, you still hear that. But but I would say not as much. And so I think it has gotten better. But there is still a stigmatization attached to it. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they get out, they don't want to talk about it because they feel that people are going to think there's something wrong with them. And um so hopefully it'll just keep improving and yeah. people will gain a better understanding and people will be less susceptible. Exactly. I, th I think so, too. I do think that there has been a kind of shift over the years, of course, coming out of, you know, Scientology, where in the in their you know, mid 2000s, there was a radical shift in public perception of Scientology because of that whole anonymous thing and all those worldwide protests. And it and, it and Tom Cruise jumping up and down that's on that right. couch. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and you know, and lambasting Brooke Shields and psychiatric medications and all the rest. He he really kind of showed a window into just how crazy it, it is. And it wasn't just this kooky celebrity <laughs> cult. People realized there was something really dangerous going on there. And I think that mm -hmm. that has been a kind of public perception shift towards these groups now. <laughs> But I, um, what about how, how, you know, cause you and I, I mean, we both watched social media start and grow into what it is and develop into whatever it's going to become. How do you think that's helped or hurt or what's your thoughts on, on social media in terms of the fight against these, these groups? Well, I, 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 it's kind of a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, there's a great deal of information available um, so that, you know, I always tell people, if you're thinking about joining something like, first of all, slow down and then do your research right. and you can find a lot of information, much of it lucid and valuable and real, uh, about something you might think about joining and which might give you pause. Uh, so I think there, there has, there, that is the plus side. I think the downside is that the internet uh, and the various forms of social zoom, all of that, I think has absolutely increased the number of cults and the reach of cults. Right. And so that now we have actually inter internet based cults, which we never, you know, before we always had what I call the run of the mill brick and mortar cults, right? Like you knew where the headquarters was, you knew who the leader was, you knew where their centers were around the world. It was much easier to get a handle on them and to, you know, to to analyze them and to grasp what they were doing. Whereas now you've got, you know, QAnon, right? Well, who the hell is QAnon? What, it, was it that guy and his son or was it not? Or you've got the anti-vaxxer movement, which is extremely cultic. And you've got, you know, who's the leader of that? Well, one day it's some radio talk show host and then he dies of COVID. So the next week it's somebody else. You know, it's like this changeable thing. 
but it is offering the same type of closed-minded community, which is what we see in cults. So, so the social media, I think, has, um, as I said, it's it's got the, both positives and negatives. It's given us a lot, a lot more to learn. And now we've got AI, you know. And so yeah. I just saw this article a couple of days ago that now AI is going to start forming cults, right? So Lord knows where this is going to go. Yeah, <laughs> gosh, that's for sure. I hadn't even thought about AI being a cult leader. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, it certainly does enable people in ways that they would not have been able to in, enabled otherwise. And uh, and it is very right. concerning. It's very concerning. Um, yeah. Now, you've probably seen this, and I'm sure you've seen this, where one of the things that I have railed against or thought was an unfortunate, you know, unintended consequence of of the education and the exposure of this material to the general public is that words start being used and bandied around by the general public that actually have very specific meanings and they lose that over time with narcissism, gaslighting, you know, this kind of thing where even the word cult, uh, you know, oh, you're just in a cult or somebody lies to you, oh, he's gaslighting you. You know, or you just somebody's a little selfish. Ah, oh, he's a narcissist. You know, and you kind of okay, guys, come on. What? 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 Yeah. Are you, what <laughs> and that, and yet, it doesn't seem like there that there's a way to curb that or stop that because it just enters the vernacular and then people's emotions take over. Right. So I don't yeah. know that there's a way to stop or even control that. But what are your what are your thoughts on that in terms of the cyclic aspect of that? Yeah, I th I think that's just human nature, you know, that <clears throat> creates these waves of of fads of language. Um, you know, <clears throat> I'm sorry, we saw that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's that's a problem, you know. I mean, I don't know for how, how many times, you know, I hear somebody say, "Well, the government's a cult. This is a cult. Right. Advertising's a cult." You know, once you start calling everything a cult, then nothing's a cult, you know? So, and the same with narcissism and all of that. It just becomes, it it becomes overused and misunderstood and misrepresented. And then it damages the the real, the real ones. <laughs> exactly. And, um, it, and it gives a kind of air so, cover to the actual narcissist too. It's exactly, exactly. And, um, and it gets mainstreamed and then it also becomes almost acceptable, right? Oh, yeah, just another narcissist, right? That's right. So, you know, I, I try to say whatever I can say about that when the opportunity comes up. I, I try to be very clear about usage and definitions and things like that. But I think that'll always just be one of the battles of uh, people glomming onto these fads. I mean... Again, I think that's just human nature. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I get, I, I don't know that there's, it's kind of like standing in a river and thinking you're going to stop it. I mean, it just, it, it's not realistic, but it's, <laughs> but it's worth commenting on because it does, mm -hmm. it, it needs to be said because of the fact that then you get groups uh, who will use that language ironically or satirically to make fun of their opposition or their critics, which it, when in fact it's valid criticism, you know? Right. And, and yeah. that, it's like Heaven's Gate. You know, it's like T. Ado, the leader of Heaven's Gate, saying, you know, yeah, of course we're a cult. We're the cult of cults, you know. So then, you know, they get 
to ride on it. And so there's also that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I remember actually, now that you just mentioned that, I remember in Scientology, people would say that to me and I would say, well, yeah. And so is the Catholic Church, if you look up the word cult, right? And so not not as good an argument now as I thought it was then. But it was. Now, still, it's still not not a cult yet. Or the Marines, no. of course. The Marines right. are a cult, right? That's right. Oh, but, I get that yeah. all the time, you know, all the time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a, all religion is a cult. Oh, the military is a cult. The government's a cult. This is a cult. And it's kind of like, guys, come on, come on. Please listen to the words I'm saying. Yeah. It's it's there, there's a, it's we we can be a little more precise, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And, and I think it does come from a lack of understanding of that spectrum and the fact that every group has culty characteristics. It's really a question of not are they engaging in us versus them or some black and white thinking, but where's the dial at? Is you know is it turned mm-hmm. up to eleven or are we down at one or two? You know, and these these are important points. You know, right? I, I mean, I, I think one place we experience that today, or at least I have in trying to speak about current events, is sort of the rise of of, of white supremacy mm. <clears throat> again since we had what's his name as president, and you know those folks were kind of glorified and. Mm-hmm. Um, but not every white supremacist group is a cult. Some of them are, yes, but it's the ideology that's extreme. It's certainly an example of extremism, but but each group is not necessarily a cult, but certainly has cultic aspects. So, you know, we, it, we're we going to keep running into that. And I think we, you and I and whoever else in this field speak out need to be clear about how to explain this to people. Exactly. I could not agree more. Now, speaking of explaining it to people, I've got a big chip on my shoulder, and I wanted to ask you about uh, whether you do too, in regards to certain areas of academia <laughs> and how <laughs> and how they represent new religious movements. And 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 it's and I use air quotes, even though I'm fully aware of the fact that there are new religious movements that are not culty and are not awful. So good, that's fine. But when you use terminology like that, or or as academics will come out and say, there's no such thing as brainwashing, there's no such thing as, as thought reform, there's no such thing as all these abuses, or they poo-poo the abuses as, oh, that's just a natural consequence of any new group. And historically, it's just kind of right. how it is, yawn, yawn, and, and just kind of give it yeah. all a pass, right? So could you speak to this from your experience? Because you've been in this way longer and, <laughs> and more deeply than I have. Oh, God, I despise those people. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yes. We have a, a what I call a gaggle, uh, a gaggle of cults apologists, um, and I don't know who else is a gaggle. Is it turkeys? But so I I, I apologize Jeez, I for think. whatever yeah. other life form is a gaggle. But uh, the gaggle of cult apologists has been uh, hard at work for, you know, at least since the late seventies. Um, what's interesting, you know, the history of this is very interesting, which is that. Initially, many of those same individuals who I who I won't name, but um, <clears throat> originally in the '70s, when we had you know what was called the Jesus Movement and a, and a lot of groups uh, recruiting very successfully, the Unification Church, Scientology, the Children of God, the Hare Krishnas, right? Yeah. In that time, many of those same people who are now cult apologists 
actually used the word cult in their work and said that. But what happened is that <clears throat> my good pal, Margaret Singer, <clears throat> was being hired as expert witness in a variety of cult of uh, legal cases, uh, criminal and civil, um, involving LGAT, you know, the large group awareness training, some of the cults, and she was helping you know, survivors or their families win these cases hand over fist. Mm -hmm. So the cults got really freaked out and thought they, they better find their own experts. So they were able to lure in some of these academics, uh, a number of whom did it for the perks. They got paid, they got sent on cruises, they got flown here and there, they were treated like royalty. Some did it because they wrongheadedly truly believe that they're defending religion. Um, and so that that was really the birth of that movement. And they are very well organized. They have some key people who head them head that up. Um, you know, we have notes from meetings that they had where, you know, the, their whole purpose was to target the uh, cult awareness organizations and infiltrate them and get them to change, which they have done quite successfully, uh, certainly with one organization. Again, I shall not name. Yes, <laughs> which like, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They also had a campaign to go at the media. So they literally targeted every newspaper um, and TV show to some extent, but mostly the print media and basically said, here, don't ever use the word cult. Don't ever use the word brainwashing. If something happens with one of these groups, here's a list of people you should contact. And people like you and me certainly weren't on that list That's or right. Ben Zablock back in the day or Margaret or whoever. Um, I mean, they, for example, they have literally tried to keep me from testifying at trials. I mean, I, I, I was, I was hired of, as an expert in a trial of a guy, a cult leader who actually killed his own four-year-old son. Mm. Uh, he had many wives. They had babies. The children were lived with him, and several of the wives lived there to take care of the children. The other women were sent around the country to earn money and send money home back to him. And he, all of his wives were black except one, and he was black. And so he had one white wife and they had a child and he always hated that child mm -hmm. because it was half white. Mm -hmm. And so one day he killed the child and took it somewhere and buried it. And two of the wives were with him, but they don't really know uh, what he did. Uh, sorry, my computer's updating or something. Um, so anyway, years later, and at the time, the women wouldn't testify because they were still completely enthralled. Mm -hmm. Well, years later, he got caught on, a, on a, a sexual abuse case with a minor, served time in prison, eight years, I think. And then he was extradited back to California. This happened around Lake Tahoe and was, was uh, sentenced with killing this four-year-old, his four-year-old son. By now, the women who had been with him were far enough removed from him that they were willing to testify. So I was hired to help explain to the jury, like why at the time, why didn't these women call the police and say, hey, you know, he just killed his kid, um, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Um, 
And we actually won that case. He was convicted and they never found the body. It's one of the few cases in the country where someone was convicted and sentenced to jail where the body has never been found. Mm. But before the trial happened, once those cult apologists heard that I was being hired, they wrote to the judge. They did everything they could to discredit me and keep me from testifying. And the judge paid no attention to it. And I was allowed to testify. But you think, how do these people sleep at night? You're going to defend a man who killed his four-year-old son on some principle of we should never use the word cult? I mean, come on. So it's it's a um I I consider them a dangerous crowd. They're quite influential. They've they've gotten into all the early like the Soch one textbooks, the psychology one textbooks. There'll be a little quote of them saying there's no such thing as a cult. It's just people who don't like religion. There's no such thing as brainwashing. It's all made up. Um so, yeah, I, I used to go to their conferences. I used to stand up and present and took the heat. Um, and off, often Ben Zablocki went with me, who was a great friend and, and kind of another mentor of mine who's since passed away. But it's been a long battle and it continues. I just saw an article today, a long article today, um, about, uh, saying never use the word cult. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's right. And it- I'll send it. I'll send, it, I'll send it to you afterwards, unless you get the ICSA newsletter. <laughs> no, I'll, uh, please do send it to me. I'd like to see it. I, yeah. I, I, you know, and it's so it's so silly because these are academics. These are people who definitely understand or are supposed to understand the concept of nuance and spectrum thinking, and you know, cause effect and this kind of thing. Oh yeah, exactly. But it it's talks. it's funny how. Uh, you know, what's that quote? Uh, if you, you know, if a man de- has to, uh, if a man's income depends on believing a certain thing, right, then there it is. And I wanted to ask about that. So, yeah, you definitely have confirmed for me that, yeah, it's it's uh, definitely about the money in certain circumstances here. And like you mentioned, yeah. it's well, also. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, the money and the, and the fact that, you know, they've built their whole careers on this. You know, they're, right. you know, they've gotten, pub- they publish each other's works, you know, so. They're, you know, they pump each other up and they they ride on this glory and, and they go, you know, they've gone to court when cults have been raided to get the children out. One or two of them have gone to court and the kids get sent back. I mean, I think that yeah, I, I thought the most heinous or one of the more one of the more that I've seen, one of the most obvious examples of where they really screwed up was with Om Shinrikyo and going over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was Melton and James, I think, or whoever those, uh, James R. Lewis. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah they really yeah, screwed Jim up. Jim Lewis, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they, 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 there was this sarin gas, you know, thing, and they went over and said, oh, no, 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 no. There's no way these guys are doing sarin gas. There's no way that they're going to kill people. Yeah. And while they're giving their press conference that they flew over to, to Japan to give, the police are raiding <laughs> the sarin gas labs, you know? I mean, it was like... You couldn't make it up. Let's move on to another topic that I'd like to cover a little bit uh, at the last bit of the show here, which is um, cult recovery, because Mm -hmm. this is a big topic. There's a lot to cover here. But could you sort of first maybe give your sort of, you know, umbrella or blanket look at like, what does cult recovery consist of? What should people expect or think about? when it comes to, okay, I just got out of a cult, I know it's a cult, I'm all screwed up, 
what are what should what should realistic expectations be for what this recovery process is going to do and look like? Well, it you know so much depends on where the person lives and and who or what might be available locally. Mm. Um, you know, often people's first thought is to go into therapy, um, and that can that can be problematic because most therapists do not understand about cult after effects. Right. So you'll go to a therapist who will want to talk to you about what happened when you were three years old, and that's not what you need. Right. What you need from the very beginning is to unpack the cult from your mind. Otherwise, you can sit in therapy for years, and you're still looking at yourself through your cult mindset, and that's not going to help anything. So finding a good therapist who's cult-informed if you can do it, is good. Um, it's part of the reason we've been doing some courses, CE courses for mental health professionals to get them trained in how to deal with cult survivor clients. Um, but mostly I think what it involves is reading books, reading the books, reading Take Back Your Life. Uh, if you grew up in a cult, reading Escaping Utopia, reading Robert Lifton, not all of it, but maybe just chapter eight, um, finding those kinds of resources that I think are helpful. Um, and if possible, maybe not right away, but after a while, if possible, join a support group or at, at my organization, we call them discussion groups because it's not therapy, but it's been shown that meeting with survivors from other cults has been really helpful to people. Yes. Because you see that, oh, your group did that and you called it that. Well, we did the same thing, only we called it that, right? And you begin to see the patterns and similarities. And you realize that, well, on, on some level, yes, your experience was very unique, but also that these are classic techniques that cults use. And yes, indeed, this is how you were manipulated and harmed and changed, right? Yeah, exactly. So that finding one of those groups and and for example we're doing those on zoom and i think other people are as well um we have discussion groups for just regular survivors as well as those born and raised in a cult we have separate discussion groups for them because that's a that's a different experience um so i think you know a combination of reading finding courses recovery courses by qualified professionals um and writing, I think writing is one of the best forms of expressing yourself. For some people, it's art, and I understand that as well. Uh, for me, I've always been a writer, and and writing things out not on the computer but by hand, because when you write stuff by hand, it actually goes into your brain. And I learned that when I was a professor. Mm. I actually used to my students. I say, when you do the reading tonight, don't underline the book. Take notes. I mean, I can pull out a book I thought I never read, and I'll see that it's all underlined. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I read this book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. so writing, writing by hand is very effective. Um, and also, you can look back at it. You can keep adding to it. So what you essentially need to do is deconstruct the cult and then deconstruct your experience in the cult. But I think first you have to understand how it happened, yeah. how it happened. Yeah. Um, you know it happened, but understanding how it happened is what's so important. I, I, so, I don't yeah. know. 
no, answers I think, your question. No, it, it answers it exactly. I think you nailed it. Um, and I, I and it takes time. It takes time. Yep. And it's a roller coaster. And, you know, there'll be times when you don't want to deal with it and that's fine. Take a break. Don't think about it. And then there are times when that's all you want to do is think about that. And there's times when you're going to be triggered by something and you're going to think, oh, my God, I thought I was over this. But boom, you know, you see somebody at the airport who looks like your cult leader and whoa, suddenly you're filled with anxiety. Right. <laughs> so it's going to it, it takes time and some of it will never leave. Um, again, depending on how long you were in the group, but it, it doesn't have to dominate your existence. That's the point. It's like learning how to cope with these things that are trauma responses, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly because you're just trying to bring down the levels of the trauma responses exactly of, of, of how it affects your life, how it affects your thinking, how it affects your emotional life. Um, right. You know, even dream life. I mean, all of that, you know, it's a yeah. gradual process. And I can't I can't think of. Uh, a, a, a better way to, to at least to, to, to speed that process up or move that process along than education. I, I, I just mm -hmm. I, I just don't know how you could possibly imagine that you're going to recover from an experience like that without understanding what happened to right. you and why it happened to you, you know? Right. And, you know, one of the things that's happening today, which I'm quite concerned about, are these quick fix solutions. So, yeah. um, for example, psychedelics, you know, psychedelics are the big thing right now. Mm. So people presenting this as some kind of therapy uh, to deal with your trauma from your cult experience. Oh, no, that mm. is not. And I have nothing against drugs. I'm an old hippie. I did every drug you can imagine. Not the hard <laughs> stuff, but you know. so it's not about the drugs. It's about, again, pushing a so-called quick fix on people who are very traumatized and very vulnerable. And um, so I'm I'm very, very leery about some of these programs that are just kind of hitting the waves. And, and I think survivors should be really careful of that. I, I could not agree more. Having done a few trips myself uh, down those lanes, I can say that had I... <laughs> And you bring up a really good point, actually, something I'd like to underline for a moment here, because from my own experience, because if somebody had convinced me or given me some psychedelics or some hardcore drugs within the first year or two of leaving Scientology, I would have started thinking about that as a substitute for it. And that's mm -hmm. not what you want to be doing with therapy or with uh, drugs at all, uh, because that's just setting up another addiction. If you d right. and, and this is where this education and this sort of slow roll comes in is there's we have analogized it in the Scientology world. And I think other people have done this in other worlds, too, of the onion layers. You're peeling back layers of an onion and everyone mm -hmm. exposes another layer that you didn't see and weren't thinking about. And and it and their only way to get to it is to peel that layer and then get to the next one, get to the next one, and and the deeper you go, the closer you're getting to you, and right. you know, and who you really are, and and you're not going to do that at the upper layers. You got to dig, and it takes time. And psychedelics yeah, might. And the problem. Yeah. Well, I was going to say yeah, psychedelics I, might help drill a hole down that, but if you're exactly. not informed, right? You know, please. Exactly. 
And yeah, I, I, that's exactly what I was going to say. And the other, the other thing that I'd be very wary of is doing any kind of group retreat. I think, you know, <laughs> I do know some people who, who are cult survivors who've been out for a while, who are doing individual psychedelic therapy with one counselor, one therapist, right? Mm. And so it's one-on-one -on -one sessions. But doing it in a group is going to be very risky because a lot of these drugs, uh, ketamine, whatever, heighten your sexual awareness. And so all kinds of shit can happen in that group context. And nice. so um, I, I very much caution against that. Yeah, yeah, you don't. It's an emotional roller coaster ride all by itself. Don't don't overcomplicate it or make it even more. You don't need yeah, right. exactly. You don't. I mean, you know, I I saw the Beatles. I saw the Sergeant Pepper's band dancing through my living room back in the day, but um, that was long before the cult. And I'm I'm happy with that memory, and we'll just leave it there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, okay, so um, good. So we've covered education. We've covered the sort of the overview of cult recovery. Now, um, what would be your best advice, right? Because a lot of people watch my shows who are coming out of cult situations or coercive domestic violence situations or gangs or something like that, right? Whatever the situation is. And they don't, you know, they're kind of like, well, what's important? What's not? What should I be paying attention to? What, you know, how should I proceed? And so what would be the best, you know, besides, besides obviously the things to be careful of, what should people be doing, uh, you know, on their own even to kind of kick the thing and get, and, and get themselves down the road? You're talking about survivors. I am. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think, uh, I think the main thing is to try to get your, to, to get yourself into a stable environment. Um, if you need to sleep, sleep, yeah. um, try to, try to establish a routine. Um, if you have to work, try to find some work that's not too demanding, especially in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, start to recognize what triggers you, what, what causes anxiety or panic attacks, like keep a list and then look for ways to manage those. Um, you know, you're having a panic attack, put your face in a freezing cold bowl of water. That'll bring you back to reality, right? <laughs> so there are different ways to handle these things. But I think, you know, in the beginning, it's really shaky and really rocking. Um, you might find that you're crying a lot. Fine, cry, get it out, right? So I think what's difficult is that while we're in the cult, we're not allowed to trust our own instincts. We can't trust ourselves, um, and our emotions have been so manipulated. So when we get out, it's like suddenly we have emotions. And we don't know what the hell to do with them. Yes. Right. And we've spent years more than likely walking on eggshells. So we're used to being in a state of anxiety. Right. Because you never know what's going to, you know, what's going to happen next. Is the leader going to turn up today and be a nice person? Or is the leader going to turn up today and be a monster? Or am I going to get called on the carpet, you know, get put in the hot seat for something? You know, it's like constant you don't know what to expect um and so i think trying to lead a very calm ordered life for a while very stable don't rush into relationships you know trust is earned be careful i mean don't become a hermit but take your time with things yeah big time and, you know 
eventually make your way to the Lawlich Center and <laughs> take go. one of our courses. <laughs> exactly. I, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny how I find it kind of modeled a little bit after Maslow's hierarchy a little bit. You know, it's like you got to yes. get those basic needs covered first. There's no use talking about therapy or even education if you're not eating, if you're not, if you don't have a place to stay, if you don't have transport. Right. You know, those basic needs have got to get stably covered first. And that's what support networks are about. You know, with Scientology, we have the Aftermath Foundation. There's other groups uh, that have other outlets to to provide a support network if the family or their or the friend network is non-existent for a person. But they're out there, and they are very, very, very important. So I think... Yeah, Uh, and I was going to say, certainly for people who were born and raised in a group, I mean, you know, often they come out, they don't they don't know anything they don't some of them don't even know their real name they don't have birth certificates they don't know if there's relatives out there they don't know what a ged is or how to get an education because all this homeschooling in the cults is bullshit you know it's my pet peeve about homeschooling like they get away with so much so we really i mean this is one of my beefs like as a society we need to have some resources for people coming out of cults and especially those who were born and raised in cults. Cause you know, somebody goes to a domestic violence shelter, they don't qualify. They're going to get turned away. It's like, you know, it, it's just so important that we understand and have some compassion f- for this huge population. Exactly. On that note, you mentioned the difference a couple times now. And in fact, you've even written a whole book on case studies of second generation cult members, people who were born and raised or, you know, in these environments. Well, I, I'm one of them. And it's a whole different mindset. It's a whole different kind of thing than a convert, uh, you know, your first generation person who decides to go into it. Could you right. speak a little bit to some of the differences there, both in mindset and does this touch on the recovery process at all? Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, what happens when you grow up in a cult is y- your life is completely controlled, right? So um, if we think about child development and if, if you, you know, there's a guy named Eric Erickson who wrote about this, who was a, a sociologist or a social psychologist. I don't know what he was. <laughs> anyway, it's E-R-I-K-E-R-I-K-S-O-N. Yeah. And his work on child development is beautiful. And he talks about these stages, that there are various stages, and there's a lot of this available on the internet, but there's various stages of life that a child through adult goes through. And, and in order to be healthy and whole, you need to go through each stage and sort of graduate accomplished everything that should be accomplished in that stage to get to the next stage and the next. So with children and cults, that doesn't happen. You're not going through the normal developmental process. So in many ways, your your development is stunted, um, not just by the lack of education in most of these groups, but also by you know, the kinds of punishments that may be going on, the rampant sexual and physical abuse that happens to children in cults, the the um, neglect by the parents in most cases, uh, in many cases being completely separated from your parents, being raised with other children, whatever it might be. So when people get out, sometimes they're, and I wasn't even raised in a cult, but I, I was 41 and I felt like I was 15. Right. So if you were raised in a cult, you come out and you're, 
30, you're going to feel like you're five, right? Yeah. And and so all of these normal, quote, normal things that people learn, all the coping skills that we learn in regular society as children, like how to make friends, how to bruise your knee and get over it, how to, uh, you know, be, in, uh, be on a sports team, all of those things, you didn't have those experiences. So you come out and everything is just like this wild, crazy world. Um, you know, I remember this example in, in my book, Escaping Utopia, where one person wrote about the first time she went to a grocery store and she was just like overwhelmed, you know, and and she and she saw jam and she had never had jam and she would buy like bottles and bottles of jam. And she had a roommate who hadn't been raised in a cult or wasn't a cult, former cult member. And then her roommate thought she was nuts because she had like, you know, 40 just a jam in the refrigerator. But all of these things, you know, it's like you go through these incredible experiences and you feel like a weirdo. Right. You feel like I mean, so everybody, I almost every single person of the 68 people I interviewed, almost every single one said, I felt like I landed from Mars. And that's exactly how it feels. It's that sense of alienation and that you're different and you don't belong and that people don't understand you. And so it's a very different process from, you know, someone like me who joined when I was 30. I had a background. I had an education. I had family. I had friends from before. I could look them up and say, who was I before? You know, all of that. I had life experiences. Um, So it's, it's really, it's a huge struggle for those who were born and raised in cults. Yeah. Big time. I, I can attest to every point you said. <laughs> exactly. And it does. It, it's And it was really interesting because even in my, I'll, I'll share this much, is even in my own therapy, I brought up Eric Erickson. I brought up those stages of development and the fact that I could see in my own life how after getting out at 42 years old, I did feel, I, I can't even put it in better words, I felt like a 15-year-old in terms of emotional mm-hmm. maturity, in terms of social interaction and development. That's where I was at. And even in some ways in my interests. And, you know, so the first thing I was doing getting out of the cult was comic books and games and movies and, (laughs) you know, all these things I didn't do as a kid. Right. Because they just weren't there for me, uh, you know, as a young man and then dating and then, you know, playing the field and all that other stuff that you just kind of have to experience because there's no substitute. There is no substitute for experience. You, you just right, got to right. go through it. And, and, yeah. And that's where some of the problems come in because many, many people come out and they don't know where to go. So they end up couch surfing or they end up living on the streets. Yeah, They end up selling themselves for sex. They get on, you know, because they don't have a support network and they they're experiencing all these things for the first time, you know, promiscuity and all of that. And so, and I mean, that's why we, we need, social resources for people because it's it's really a struggle and there are so many suicides so many suicides mm, yeah just tragic it's totally tragic and so unnecessary well mm. if we i'd like to kind of wrap up then maybe if you could speak to you mentioned the lalich center and <laughs> and i i'd like to actually talk about that a little bit because um because at the conference the other day where you and i interacted briefly that that featured and you spoke about that and i thought that was uh <laughs> basically, frankly, fucking brilliant. I, I really think it's a good idea. And and we need a lot more of those, right? So what so what is it you're doing and and how would people connect with that? Okay, so <clears throat> first I have to cough. Of course. Um, this is what happens when you're a smoker. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Um, so I, de I, I decided, I've thought for a long time about starting a nonprofit, but it always seemed too overwhelming. Um, <clears throat> but then I realized as I, <clears throat> as I reached in my 70s, and I'm now 78, that I needed to think about a legacy of, of, for all this work that I've done all these years. And um, I have been I had been working with a team of people who were really spectacular, all of them survivors. Um, and I and I thought, okay, this is the team and we can do it, you know. So we had a retreat last fall and we talked about our mission and our values and our behavioral code and all of that. Um, and I had already applied for the nonprofit. I had filed the paperwork and then we got the uh, tax deductible status. So what we're doing is um, right now our, our website is being developed by a company that only does websites for nonprofits and they do it for free, which is fantastic. Oh, nice. So they are working on our website, which will be fabulous once it's ever done. This, of course, is taking longer than we hope, but we do have a temporary website. Uh, which is uh, www.lawlichcenter.org. Um, and, and at that website, link you to can, that in the description here, folks. Um, and at that site, you can sign up for our newsletter or sign up for our mailing list or any of our programs. So what we're offering at the moment are the discussion groups that I mentioned earlier uh, for survivors, for people born and raised, um, we've had writing workshops. Uh, we're going to be doing a music, kind of a music therapy workshop, uh, art therapy, uh, which will be interesting on Zoom because the person doing it has never done this on Zoom before. So she's trying to figure that out. Um, we will be doing our courses again. Um, one of our key, one of my key collaborators and dear friend um, was recently diagnosed with cancer. So She's just finished the treatment and is kind of recovering for the summer. So she was very integral to some of the recovery courses because she's a trauma therapist and can explain what happens to the brain just so brilliantly. So we probably won't be doing that particular course for a while. Um, we are going to do other courses, some open to the public, like for anybody, like we're going to be doing a course, which I'm really excited about on how to be an ethical coach because mm. coaching is this thing right now, right? It's like hypnotherapy used to be like anybody can hang up a shingle and say, I'm a coach. Right. Yeah. And people are just getting scammed left and right. So we have two coaches who are ethical. We're going to teach this course. Um, we're going to have a course on how cults exploit religious traditions Mm. Uh, which will be taught by a guy who grew up in the Fellowship of Friends cult. He got out when he was 17. He got himself to school. He went to, uh, got a PhD in religion and teaches at one of the community colleges here in California. Um, absolutely wonderful guy. So he's going to be teaching that course, which will be great. And that's obviously open to anyone. Um, and, you know, Probably later in the summer, we'll be picking up more of our recovery courses like forgiveness of self and healthy boundaries and that kind of thing. We also do live events, uh, live Zoom events, uh, which is one advantage of being on the mailing list. Like we did our our first writing workshop, which was led by a woman who is a 
award-winning uh, screenwriter from Hollywood. Um, and film, she did a film called The Manson Girls. Um, and she herself grew up in a cult. And she was in one of our discussion groups and then said, hey, I'll, I'd like to lead a writing workshop. Well, the people in her workshop wanted to read what they wrote to others. So we had a big Zoom event. It was about 35 people. Um, and all of their pieces were sort of inspired by some song that meant something to them when they were kids in the cult. And so we'd play like 45 seconds of that song and then they would read their piece and everybody was in tears. And I mean, it was just an amazing event. Um, so we'll probably be doing more of that kind of thing, um, which are fr that, that's free. Uh, the discussion groups are $25. They meet weekly. We have scholarships. Um, we hope to do a big launch probably in the fall, like a big fundraising launch. So as I was saying earlier, we can have more scholarship money um, and help a little. I mean, there's not a lot of admin costs because everything, you know, it's not like we have to pay rent somewhere. Everything's virtual these days, but right. I do, I do have one employee so far uh, who's our communications director. Um, and we hopefully want to be able to, pay people because we've all done that slave labor shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't want to recreate that. Right? right. So, you know, everybody's like, well, let me volunteer. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. We don't, you know, so right now people are volunteering, but I, I don't want that to continue forever because it just, you know, Oh yeah. Um, I understand the desire, but it, you know, given our backgrounds, it does start to feel a little exploitative, you know, to do that forever. So, um, anyway, cool. so that's what we do and, and I'm really excited about it and it's been a lot of work, <laughs> but I think it'll be great. And I think that when I'm gone, there will hopefully be enough people to keep this going and, and carry on with, you know, our main goal, which is survivors first. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, thank you for that rundown on that. And I hope that, um, like I said, I'm going to put a link to that below. Sorry for interrupting you earlier on that. Um, so that that's people, right. so that people can connect on that, right? Because that's a great resource and, and there are resources out there that are great. We need a lot more. <laughs> we need a lot more because this is a worldwide problem. And it's, and like we said at the get go, this oh, isn't, this isn't going away. Right. Yeah. I can say, you know, the, the last year and the year before we did some zoom courses online and we had people from Sweden, Mexico, Spain, Slovenia, Scotland, England, Canada. I mean, you name it. It's a, talk about a worldwide problem. It, it, it's incredible. I mean, we were just like, oh my God, she's from Scotland. Oh my God, she's from Spain. You know, it's like yeah. amazing. So yeah, the, the more of us who can be out there doing this legitimately, the better. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Yanya, Thank you very much for taking the time to be on my show today. I really, really appreciated it. Um, this is just, it's, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's an honor for me. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm really glad. I mean, I think you were one of the first podcasts I did way back when. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, way back. Yeah. yeah. 
Awesome. I really thrilled. And I'm glad you're doing so well. So. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been, uh, I, I, I honestly, if I had footsteps to follow in, you know, I, I've always said this is, I, I'm working on the shoulders of giants. You know, I really, I, that's how I feel. And, and there's the Scientology world giants that I've referred to, and there's the non-Scientology and you're, you're one of those people who absolutely is an inspiration to me. So, so thank you for doing what thank you do. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. So All right. Take good care. <laughs> Thank right. you. Um, folks out there, uh, just wrap up the show here. Uh, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Please share this video around and about. And uh, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.